0: Second
2: time's done, oh! They never got home. They never got home. They never got home, those, those, boys. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really.
3: Well oh, You can laugh.
2: walk-up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What
4: did
3: your mother? I to it. stay alive. i oh, I'd, I'd, I'd say it to you, face. I'll say
0: it to
4: you now. I want down Swansfield. I'm a leader. What you doing
0: down here, you me man? See, I tried to warn you. This is what happens when I let somebody else, in particular Richie Sadler, sit in the presenter's chair for the day. Welcome to Monday Second Captains Football Podcast. I'm Murph and Ken. <laughs> We're still on this, aren't we? Yeah.
5: Uh, you're still on this. No, just this obsession with Richie.
0: Oh, well, no, it's not my obsession now. See, it doesn't, even, obsession. it doesn't
3: even seem like an obsession there. <laughs> That's how warped it is. It's weird that,
0: that <laughs> people who are
5: obsessed about do things. things don't realise that they're obsessed with that unusual thing. unusual so far.
0: On the first ever episode of the Players' Chair last week, part of the new Second Captain's World <laughs> Service, <laughs> Richie sat down with Sean Dyche, <laughs> manager of Burnley. Yeah. What followed was a, admittedly a searing insight into Dyche's methods. Great interview. Dyche talking about how he gets the best out of... Uh, well, he didn't say limited group of players, I'm, I'm putting words his mouth there, but imbuing them with old-fashioned values. A
3: bloody great bunch of
0: lads. Good football lads, yeah. Imbuing them with old-fashioned values like pride, passion, fighting spirit, mm. all those qualities that have disappeared from so many Premier League footballers again, apparently. Very next game anyway, Burnley, welcome, non-league, Lincoln City to Turf Moor. And look, it's not me saying anything about this. I'm going to hand you over to Tarek Amir, one of the many people who tweeted something along these lines. Is it too early to attribute Burnley's fate to the curse of the player's chair? <laughs> well no Tariq I would say that's just about right How else to explain I mean there's no way It was just a case of An understrength Burnley team Being totally unmotivated By the thoughts of playing a, You know A non-league team When they're used to Going out against Man United and Liverpool On a weekly basis No 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 It's the curse Murph
5: Of the players Are, you, are you actually Trying to turn people off Appearing on Richie Sadler's The Listen, players' show? Is that what you're say? doing I just say
0: You've got to be wary Of what comes up next Maybe just do it in the off season You haven't got a game The following week <laughs> the curse. The curse is only ever going to last a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so if you do it in the summer, yeah, do a lot of interviews in the summer, and then we've, we've, we've
5: done a lot of tests on the players' yeah. chair uh, curse, and it does the effects wear off after a number of weeks. So just I, bear
0: that in mind. I must say I enjoyed the Joey Barton big Matt Reed battle again.
3: Joey Barton is one of those funny players. He's actually smaller than you think he is. Well, particularly
0: when he's getting into it with a guy about a foot taller than him. Matt Reed uh, was. Started playing, started, only started playing at the top level, at the top level, only started playing um, professionally at 28 years of age or something like that.
3: Yeah, yeah. The BBC website, I think, described him as a domineering presence. Yeah. Um, you don't miss him. You wouldn't miss him out in the field, anyway. And, you know, Joey, Joey Barton was, was taunted and mocked by everybody, the internet, uh, for his behaviour, which appeared to, okay, so... First of all, he stamped on the foot of Matt Reed or put, put his heel studs into, the, into Matt Reed's foot. Then he sort of scuttled around Matt Reed and fell to the ground as though he had been felled uh, by a haymaker. Um, the referee didn't fall for it. Mm-hmm. And then in a subsequent scuffle, uh, Joey Barton was seen to sort of put his hand into someone's face. Not with any great violence, but, you know. You don't raise a hand in football. Yeah, sometimes you do, but you're not supposed to. Uh, so uh, people are saying, oh, what a disgrace, Joey Barton. He did, however, also get a massive elbow to the head from Matt Reed. Did you see uh, yeah. that? I wouldn't have actually seen this if Joey Barton, because I didn't watch the full game, although I had, there was a friend a friend of mine uh, texting me saying, you've got to turn on this game. This is what English first division football was like back in the 80s. This is it. Like we're, we're seeing a kind of, this is like Jurassic Park out on this in turf more but yeah i wouldn't have actually seen this incident if joey barton hadn't tweeted it himself in his own defense and it was the most credible of the things that he tweeted to defend himself because he he tweeted a few things um he claimed wasn't trying to get the big man sent off (laughs) this is Joey barton there of matt reed yeah capitalizes big man (laughs) It was my job to front screen and disrupt him. Was trying to get back in front of him. Tried to duck under his arm and he moved it back and hit me on the head. Contact is part of the game. No problem with that. Unlike their player saying he was kicked on the floor and also the one who jumped and held his face as if he'd been struck. Uh, But that wouldn't make a good story, would it? Fair play to Lincoln. They were well organized and that's cup football. Good luck in the next round. (laughs) So he was kind of trying to be magnanimous in the last week but wasn't really that magnanimous with his other tweets I do have to say though he did take a hell of, the elbow was by far the worst thing out of all the things that I saw I'm in just terms looking of at violence. That now yeah that
0: was this elbow in particular not to be confused with the previous instance you mentioned after the stamp after mm. the stamp Reed went to remonstrate with the referee and as he took his put, put his arms out to remonstrate Barton managed to run into one of the arms and jump to the ground what you're talking about was in open play Barton jumping up for a header actually standing there about to jump for a header and big Matt Reed comes in and clocks him yeah
3: yeah, yeah properly I don't know why I'm laughing uh, well I mean I don't know why I suppose it's just right, yeah. because you're <laughs> uncomfortable you're just un, you're a little uncomfortable with this material and it's nervous laughter that's what's happening is it fair to say anybody could
2: have managed those guys no of course not about twelve. <laughs> Everyone in the city. Knew about it, but no one had seen him. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? No really. What happened?
5: What happened? It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important.
0: Curses aside, it was a great start to the second captain's World Service last week to have Sean Dyche in the player's chair, one of the top young managers in English football at a time when English football is screaming out for top young managers. Interestingly though, Dyche sounded really, really wary of the idea of going after the top
5: job right now. The pressure on your family, if that job offer ever did come, that will never change. The England job comes with certain baggage. Like what age will your kids have to be or what will your personal life have to look like for you to go, okay, now I'm ready to deal with that bit?
2: Well, I think it's, I think personally, um, and I'm a big family man, as you well know, Then mm-hmm. I think for a 14-year-old and 11-year-old to take that on now is too young. Simple as that. What's the
5: right Later age? Later
2: on, then? well, I don't think there is a right age, but what I'd say, old enough to understand the, the complexities of it. Because let's face it, how many good stories do you know about the England manager? Exactly, as he shakes as his as head. As yeah. yeah, exactly, so... So, y- y- the chances are it's not going to be that much good news unless you win a major tournament. Well, people haven't been winning major tournaments and it doesn't mean you don't want to go at it and it doesn't mean you haven't got a thirst to do it somewhere down the line by the way. I must make that clear and take the heat because I've got no problem with that. But not at a stage in my family's life, they're not ready to deal with that. My son takes heat at school because I'm Burnley manager. Do you know what I mean? You know, because Burnley's not the trendy, it's not Arsenal, it's not Chelsea. So, you know, I'm not going to put that on their lives um, for starters and, but I must make it clear, this is imbalanced, by the way, because, you know, the things with interviews like this, you know someone will lift this and then make a big drama out of this. I'm just trying to speak honestly, open about it, you know. Um, there's no drama to it.
0: Yes, that's right. Sean Dyche's son goes to school, presumably in Burnley, or somewhere in the greater Burnley region, <laughs> and gets stick from his classmates because his dad is the Burnley manager. Jeez, it's all about the top four these days, isn't it? Mm. Even, there is Even there is no defined top four anymore, I don't think, but... Uh, that's the way it is for poor Sean Dyche's kids and he's worried I know Ken you're a little dubious you think it might be a bit different if the FA came to Sean Dyche's door tomorrow knocked in and said I would you like he, the
3: job he would have to he, I think he would definitely <laughs> accept the job maybe though maybe some of those um, kids are you know Blackburn fans uh, Sean Dyche was certainly giving thanks for Zlatan over the weekend <laughs> things could have been worse after going out to Lincoln City Thank you, Zlatan.
0: If you're into hearing that entire interview as well as all six shows we put out last week and a minimum six shows a week from
3: now on, just do
0: what so many others have been doing and become a member of the Second Captain's World Service. So membership costs €5 euro a month plus VAT depending on where in the world you're living. And as well as the daily podcasts, you get a Second Captain's induction pack, members-only events, priority notice to all live events that we do, a Second Captain's badge on a once-in-a-lifetime Ken Early Doodle. His Devon Toner is a thing of beauty. Mm. And there's any denying that.
5: It, it Neck may have been Slightly lengthened Just for illustrative purposes mm-hmm. But either way it, uh, Stunning likeness
0: You can do all that On secondcaptains.com But be warned Spending all this time second Captains in your ears Can have a detrimental Detrimental A detrimental, if, <laughs> <It's> detrimental. <laughs> That could be a word No it's not A detrimental effect On your relationships As Dave Long has discovered Dave tweeted Why you cut?" And this is in inverted commas Why are you constantly wearing headphones around the house? Asks fiancé. Hashtag world service. (laughs) If you prefer to maintain harmony in your home and aren't interested in signing up, that's no problem. You'll continue to get both of our Monday podcasts whatever way you're listening to this one. That's one football pod and one non-football. For the daily shows, please sign up. Away from Turf Moor, Millwall knocked Leicester out at the new den. Um, That's their home that looked like it was going to be demolished until the club supporters stepped in with the help of The Guardian's Barney Roney who's done some great reporting on this story we're going to talk to Barney in a little while and poor old Barcelona very nearly got humiliated for the second time in a few days Dermot Corrigan on that one all after
3: the report on sport So um, the FA Cup uh, continues tonight it's Sutton against Arsenal and continues this wonderful theme of the real men of lower division and non-league football against um, you know pampered uh, and cosseted uh, Premier League elites. And what better example of that culture could there be than Arsenal Football Club who go to Sutton? Um, uh, and I mean, there's, there are various spine-chilling details of the... Uh, the horrors that await. Just the grit that awaits, you know. Um, it's, it's the real world at Sutton. I mean, I've been in Sutton. It's a fairly... It's it's an extremely normal, uh, you know, suburb, little suburban area of London, I guess. I don't know if if it's technically counted as London, but, you know, it's half an hour on the train from Victoria. Uh, You know, it's got the same shops on the high street as anywhere else. But, you know, according to all the build-up to Arsenal, or certainly against Arsenal, it's it's a completely different world. It's (laughs) like... um, (laughs) I mean, there's this thing, um, what was, I was reading about it the other day, some guy on uh, Reddit had had written a post, this is years ago now, but I was only reading about it the other day, had written a post, hey guys, what would happen if, a, if a, a unit of US Marines was transported back in time to ancient Rome, would they have been able to conquer the Roman Empire? Anyway, he wrote, he wrote this and it blew up so big that like immediately he, a movie studio was in touch saying, oh, can we buy the movie rights to this <laughs> idea? <laughs> so I think, I think there is a movie coming out about this. But before the movie ever, actually, we, before any of us get to see the movie, we will get to see Arsenal <laughs> against Sutton, which is essentially the same type of setup. You know, uh, Alexi Sanchez standing in the dressing room, you know, probably about to burst into tears. You know, I've never seen anything like this. My God, that ice, that bath—is it? What? What is that thing? It's uh, oh, that's the communal bath. No, the boiler doesn't work. Uh, the Sutton groundsman says Tranmere Rovers used it as an ice bath. So maybe the Arsenal players will be queuing up to jump into that one because they have to wait because there's only four, uh, four working showers. So unless they want to stand, unless they want to share the space under the shower, they're going to have to queue up. Yeah. Um, this is just this is the uh, gauntlet that Arsenal have to have to run, and and also there's a 3G pitch that could be even more problematic than the robust approach of Sutton. Um, well, I mean, according to Sutton, uh, there's no problem with this 3G pitch because everybody uses them, everyone's got them in their training grounds and yeah, whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Different
0: from being used to playing an 11-a-side match on it every week, I would have thought.
3: Um, well, Arsene Wenger certainly sees quite a few problems with it. Um, he says it's not the same because it's a dry pitch, and I've heard that Sutton have a wet pitch. So the one that the one the dry pitch Wenger refers to is the one at London Colney Russell train. They water before the game. So it'll be much quicker. It means the weight on the joints is stronger. You kind of glide. You have to block every time. So it makes football a bit different because the ball comes to you and somebody accelerates and doesn't slow down like in a normal game. So you have to get used to the difference in speed. That's Arsene Wenger. Um, Just making sure that nobody on his team is unduly worried about the challenges. (laughs) And
0: I suppose you could argue against that on a normal grass pitch when it's been raining. The yeah. ball zips around. The movements are different than when it you're just walking around. You're, ju- you're just playing on a perfectly bone dry pitch. So yeah. you know maybe you're just gonna have to deal with that.
3: Well, Arsenal, Arsenal like that. I mean, they water that pitch before every game, get that ball zipping along. Um, but I mean, you know, then then once they get out onto that pitch, and once they get out of the of the dressing room environment and out onto the pitch, they then face the men of certain United. Are these guys all six foot six?
0: They sound like monsters. He's-
3: It's not so much the height as the girth which will intimidate the uh, whippet-like frames of these Arsenal footballers. 11 big Matt Reeds. Well, um, Nicky Bailey uh, told The Sun on Sunday that, uh, well, he he attributes his success in football to the diet. He says, my diet has got me to where I am today. I am not the best eater. Uh, He said, I don't think I've ever had a salad in my life. Or a vegetable. <laughs> it's always worked for me. My pre-match meal is always a McDonald's.
5: Sorry, who's this, who's this guy? What's his name?
3: Nicky Bailey.
5: Nicky Bailey is one of the great PR men I've come across in football in the last yeah. five years. By <laughs> he right. just, Talk
3: about giving a journalist
5: what he wants <laughs> to hear.
3: This guy understands. This guy gets the FA Cup. Yeah. He says, my pre-match meal is always a McDonald's. Nine nuggets. When I was younger, my mum used to try and make me eat the green stuff, but I used to sick it up. Uh, Jesus. It's all about rattling their players, Bailey continued. What, eating the McDonald's? No, he'll he'll have... He's moved on from from the McDonald's. If anyone tries to get past me, then they're coming down, so long as it's done in the right way, uh, said Bailey. So best to look to Arsenal Uh, with all that. I mean, obviously they should... Uh, win pretty easily. I mean, they are, after all, playing against a team including players who claim that they've just eaten nine chicken McNuggets before the game
5: and have never eaten a vegetable in his
3: life. And if anything, Arsene Wenger believes in. You know, if if there's any truth to any of the system of beliefs that he's developed in his near seventy years on earth, that should be a big disadvantage to sudden.
5: Vegetables are good. <laughs> I'm going uh, to say one of the cornerstones of Arsene Wenger's managerial philosophy. What's
0: what's this guy's name again?
5: Nicky Bailey. I'm going to say Nikki Bailey's eaten a vegetable in, in
0: the past. If he's if he's so into McDonald's, right? Surely he's gotten the odd cheeseburger. You get a cheeseburger at McDonald's, you're getting a gherkin
3: in. <laughs> My pre-meal is always a McDonald's. I don't believe it.
5: Well, they're McNuggets. In fairness, he he did say that it was non-chicken McNuggets.
0: I suppose yeah. If you go to McDonald's, you, you tend to get the same thing every time. So maybe maybe he's never had a burger in there. I don't know.
3: Yeah. No, it could it could be. I suppose I just people do. Yeah, I mean, usually, some the, you go through a, a, a phase of experimentation. I mean, when you try some of the other things, it's <laughs> not like a McChicken sandwich, or anything that crazy? Have you Thank ever you. had a McChicken sandwich? on? Oh, yeah, you have. Bloody
5: yeah. nice on. I knew, you. You? yeah, you yeah. Would've. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan, Ken. You, are, you I'm see an the, the <laughs> are you see the of the chicken sandwich? You
0: seen a lot of fast food. Again, I went to McDonald's often enough in certain years of my life that I could justify tr- <laughs> branching out into the. Listen, i to be back tomorrow. You
3: know, if if this doesn't work out, I'll be back tomorrow.
0: Tomorrow, I wish it was that long. The
3: but but obviously, the, we we had spoken a lot in, in recent times about Arsene Wenger and uh, his situation there. We got an email actually from listener Con Callan, who was at the Emirates. Editor uh, at
0: secondcaptains.com If you want to email him.
3: He was at the Emirates and he ran into, um, I don't know if it'd be too much to say, a f- friend of the show. Maybe not after this.
2: I am here with my man troops. We're fucked, blood. We're <laughs> fucked, fam. Big up all the Irish, man. Me. i got love for you lot. A lot of love for you lot, man. But we're fucked still.
3: <laughs> yeah, he's. Yeah. Uh, that was I am here with my man troops. Troops. <laughs> <laughs> troops only too delighted to. Uh, to say hello to his uh, Irish God, fans. it's amazing.
5: You know, he still has time for his fans. It's just
3: I love it, but do, I don't, so I mean, humble. He still does, and this is the, this is despite I, I don't know if you saw over the weekend, but the long-awaited, I mean, the breathlessly anticipated uh, showdown interview between Gary Neville and the Arsenal fan TV boys.
0: Ooh, no. how to go?
3: It was disappointingly boring. <laughs> oh, and I have to, I have to level with you here. I, I, I did have high hopes. For this, but it turned out to be, it was like Neville has invited them evidently to the MNF uh, studio, the sky. So they're in the Sky studios. They're kind of sitting around uh, uh Robbie, uh, the Arsenal fan TV presenter, uh, the four, uh, four personalities, four of the more uh, well-known fans, mm. uh, uh, troops DT, Claude and uh, Mo. And uh, and then on the other side, Gary Neville, and Neville is Neville is there. He he uh, he adopted a sort of monumental pose in his chair, um, with his you know sitting sitting sort of back. Imagine the Lincoln Memorial. Mm-hmm. That's that was the pose that Gary Neville adopted, with his hands both hands resting on his thighs, uh, as he surveyed. Um, he cast a cold eye over the Arsenal fan TV voice. and what happened then was about thirty five minutes of. a, Quite a essentially circular conversation, <laughs> in which they accused him of not, or they uh, don't matter to know why they didn't get enough respect from him. And he said, "I do respect you, but I disagree with you." I, you know, uh, and and a lot of it had to do with his disrespectful tone when he said that the Arsenal fan was an idiot for bringing the banner. And he Neville said, "Look, where I come from, idiots not really offensive. <laughs> um, you have to go some way, some further way up the." Up the ladder of insult in order to get a reaction, uh, but you know it was it was kind of like oh, we're not getting. Good. It's it's it seemed like you're you are actually sitting in the Sky Studio now talking to Gary Neville, who's probably the best known pundit uh, on television in the country at this time. You know, there's no point in spending all that time sort of wanting to know why you're not taken seriously by people like Gary Neville, who's literally sitting in front of you. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Um. So, yeah, from that point of view, it, was, um, it, it wasn't all that helpful. I mean, you could see that there was definitely... Uh, it, it, it might have been a bit different if the Arsenal fan TV guys had, had adopted more of their persona that they have when they're actually angry after a defeat. It's
4: turning! It's turning blood! Yeah.
3: But the, the, the issue there is
0: that they weren't angry after a defeat and they were also in the wrong physical space. That meeting had to take place outside the Emirates after a defeat. <laughs> Otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point of those guys? What's well, the point to him if he's not raging after a defeat? Uh, you th- well, look, I don't. I don't think that's.
3: you think that's necessarily
0: true? I mean, he's no. But my point being that if you're going to get if you're walking into Gary Neville's studio,
3: yeah. Gary Neville's home,
0: you're just you're going to be more polite. You think
3: Neville. Neville might have nubbled him somewhat by it? the choice of venue.
0: And possibly killed him with a bit of kindness. I don't know how kind I he think was. He,
3: I think that might have been the case. Mm. I think it might have been the case. I mean, it's, a, it's something that was done by Jose Mourinho, wasn't it? Um, that was one of his first things that he did when he arrived at uh, Manchester United. Remember that? Mm. He, his Almost his first act was to defang the most potent critic of the previous uh, two regimes.
5: You got the job on a set, Nicoleta.
3: Yeah, uh, uh, defanged was he by Mourinho. Well, he was brought in by Jose Mourinho. I think this was before Manchester United had played any games uh, as Mourinho when Mourinho was the manager. But he's you know he knows that football isn't all about what happens on the field. Sometimes what happens off the field is also important. So one of the first things he did was bring in Andy Tate. Um, it was a little bit like a cat going to the vet. Um, you know, the cat, maybe a, a a temperamental young tomcat, full of energy, uh, comes into the vet, gets tickled on the belly, sort of a numbing injection. And uh, a few months later, the cat is noticeably more sluggish, uh, more rounded in physical appearance, and isn't getting half as many views on YouTube. <laughs> Not a fraction as many views. Um, he, Jose Mourinho... Uh, conducted uh, a QA and a with uh, Andy, which took the form of uh, a friendly quiz. Do we have a bit of audio from that? Let's hear a bit.
2: Your time starts now. Oh God. you just parked up at Carrington, and one of the lads walks past, what do you say? All right, mate. Correct. What is the pub in called?
4: The Rover's Return.
2: Correct. And what beer do they serve?
0: Hey, well, <laughs> Newton and Ridley. Salted. <laughs>
4: What is your favourite member? I'll take that. Jason. <laughs> Man too, correct. What do we call food in Manchester? Scram. Correct. Finish this
2: sentence: meat pie, chips, peas, and. Gravy. I would also have accepted curry sauce. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very professional there, Mister so Tate.
3: I think on that video there's about a hundred thousand views. I mean, when you compare it to that, you got the job and the technicality for, from a legend who recommended you. I, you know, it's, it's more in the region of two and a half million. And obviously was used as the base for for thousands and thousands of other uh, clips and vines and whatnots. I guess has been viewed a billion times. Mm. You know, it's it's definitely the Gangnam style of of like uh, fan TV thing. But there hasn't been anything like that since. And I just wonder if Jose, uh, if that was one of the smarter things he's done. Could be Wenger's next step
0: to get a couple of the boys in and do a quiz like that.
3: Yeah, he he, he argued we should have done it before. I think um, I think maybe it's gone a little too far now. It may have, but what's uh, just speaking of Mourinho? Obviously, his team uh, had a good comeback win against uh, Blackburn Rovers. A great link up between Pogba and Ibrahimovic. Ibrahimovic is phenomenal. I mean, Ibrahimovic is now the top scorer at Manchester United for the last two seasons. You know, since the beginning of last season, he's obviously only been there. You know. Half of, half of a season or a little over half a season, 24 goals. So he's on track to score like 30 goals as a 35-year-old.
5: A bit more than that, I'd say, is it?
3: Well, you know, I mean, it's, you're assuming he's in, nothing happens to him injury-wise. You know, he's going well. I mean, he, he looks he's on target certainly to score more than 30 goals, which is a phenomenal return. Absolutely phenomenal. I mean he he signed on a free transfer. Okay, he's he's very far from a free transfer. He's a very expensive. He's he's a very expensive player. But the idea of a uh you know 34 35 year old arriving in a free transfer scoring 30 goals uh is you can't really expect that. Ibrahimovic has got one fewer goal than Lionel Messi since the start of last season and more goals than Ronaldo. You know, seventy uh, seventy-five for Messi. He scored two last night. Zlatan has got seventy four. Ronaldo has got seventy two. Since the beginning of last season, it's absolutely incredible. When, when you consider his, uh, you know, his age is just—he's he, a massive outlier. You know, I can't—I can't think of anything.
0: And as w- one of the Man United players over the weekend, weekend oh, I think it was Chris Smalling was also marveling at how much he plays. Yeah, you know, he was saying, like, "This guy's played more for us than almost anybody else." But his age is not an issue, and let's just sign him up. For, uh,
3: for another year I mean age is clearly not a you know not everybody ages at the same rate I think it's fair to say you know some people are able to keep it going a bit longer than others Zlatan is obviously in that category although you would have thought given his immense size that you know it's not easy for a guy that size to stay as fit as he is you know it's just like I have no idea how he's able to do it but he is uh, you know he, he, he bailed Manchester United out of it again nice goal too Beautiful goal. And there's a great photograph of it. I don't know if you've seen where it's a it's a photograph from kind of almost behind the goal, so it's facing. You can see the goalkeeper in the foreground and Zlatan behind, and Zlatan is grinning ear to ear because he can see the ball is going in. <laughs> he's he's already just grinning as he as he runs away. Um, but uh, but obviously, uh, Jose Mourinho, as you heard in the, in the quiz answers with Andy Tate, he he understands English culture, and he was making the point that some some of these foreign managers don't. Um, You've got managers who don't really get it, sure. He says, uh, he, he talked about some of his own experiences. He said, uh, he's talking about playing against Chelsea, playing against Newcastle, rather, with Chelsea in, in his first season. I threw it away. I gambled too much, he said, of uh, uh, Chelsea's FA Cup defeat to Newcastle in his first season. I focused too much on Barcelona and Liverpool. They were playing Barcelona in the Champions League. remember they beat them 4-2, was it at Sanford Bridge? And... Um, and Liverpool, who they were playing, they beat Liverpool in the, in the League Cup final around the same time. Uh, so I don't throw it away now. If I lose, I lose because the opponent was better or because we didn't play well. Um, he says, uh, maybe we don't have as many English managers with that culture as we should. Maybe we foreign managers. Not everybody studies and understands the culture of the country. In my case, I had immediately in my first time that situation with the match at Newcastle. For me, it was a lesson. Some of these guys... Never learned, though. I wonder what Pep Guardiola learned. He drew nil-nil against Huddersfield. Manchester City drew nil-nil against Huddersfield. Of course, Manchester City had, you know, noticeably weakened team. I'm so happy, believe me. <laughs> um, uh, he was asked about the. Uh, he was asked about this decision to, you know, play, make eight changes or whatever. My friend, I take the decisions. You analyze my decisions. In other words, I don't analyze my own decisions. You'd expect me to do your job for you as well, Mr. Reporter, sir. Um, you have to take a decision before the game. It's the best solution. It was what I did. If you don't agree, you can write it. What I hear in the last 10 days. He went on to talk about something, and we've been talking about that. What I hear in the last 10 days about how people, ex-players and journalists treat Arsene Wenger is unacceptable. Our job in this moment doesn't have any respect for any position. It's not respectable what happened. That's why we take the decisions. You can say whatever you want. So... Wenger will like that, won't he? I um, will
0: appreciate that, that the much younger, more fashionable super manager has, without prompting, come out and defended Arsene Wenger's honour.
3: I think so. Although, you know, plenty of people do have been defending Arsene Wenger's honour. I mean, we mentioned Gary Neville. He spends a lot, of the, a lot of the interview, the 36 minutes of it or whatever, repeating over and over again what a great manager Arsene Wenger was. You know what I mean? He definitely was... Uh, was went out to bat for him. Um I, I you know you hear it from from a lot of people. I mean, the Vegas needs to win some games. That's just the that's just the way it works.
0: Win some games starting against the Monster Gladiators at Sutton tonight. That's it for Kennedy's Report on Sport. Baby don't hurt me.
4: Sorry, I've lost it. The First Minister's name. Kieran Murphy, our second captain, and John Henderson, former to Kenny and Wigley Hurley. Thank you both indeed for that. Uh, That's our lot for today. Just one headline. The British Prime Minister, Theresa May, is to meet the teacher again Kenny in London tomorrow. This morning she's at Stormont meeting Martin McGuinness and uh, also Theresa... Sorry, I've lost the First Minister's name. Arlene
5: Arlene Foster, thank you for that.
0: All right, one of the big results of the weekend was Millwall knocking Leicester out at the the New Den, a stadium that looked as though it was going to be demolished up until fairly recently. Um it hasn't been and things are looking up for Millwall thanks in large part to the work of our next guest the Guardians Barney Hey, Barney, you must have been, you've been working closely uh, with supporters of the club and you've been a big part of this. You must've been pleased to see them get a big result like that on
4: the pitch. Yeah, I mean it was it was amazing. Um beating the the champions of England, albeit pretty rubbish champions of England, is is kind of, you, you, you wouldn't be allowed to make it up in the film version of this, would you? Um, and, and it was an amazing day. It was beautifully sunny. The den was full and um, it was just a really nice day in the sun for everyone there. And at the end of a really horrible, stressful period as well, like you say.
0: Yeah, stressful period. Bernie, can you get your, uh, let us know how you got yourself involved in this, how you started reporting this story?
4: What came to your attention? Well, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not exactly a Millwall fan, but I'm a, a local person. I've lived in the borough for my whole life, and this had been bubbling away at the edge of things. You, you kind of, you kept hearing about it and thinking, oh no, someone will stop that. That that won't happen. That that's too ridiculous. It can't, it can't possibly happen. You kept hearing about the plans of the council to seize the land around the Den, where the um, Millwall's Community Trust is, which is a fantastic thing. It's an incredibly well, it's a very run-down area, it needs all the help it can get, and Mill will do great things in the community. And you kept hearing this was happening and thinking, no, that, that just can't be right. So I, I started to, to look into it when it, it just, nobody nobody, nobody carried on doing the thing, it just kept going through. And, and the first thing that really rang a bell with me was, was having a proper look at who was involved in this and discovering at that point that the company that stood to benefit from this deal had actually been originally set up by the previous Labour mayor of Lewisham, which, uh, I don't know about you, but it strikes me as a slightly old one. Um, and it all kicked on from there,
3: really. What were the, What did this deal look like, you know, on the surface? I mean, what, what were they presenting it as? What, what were they trying to sell it as?
4: Well, I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, nobody disputes that the area could do with a lick of paint and a tidy up. You know, it's, um, it's a light industrial area, uh, half a mile from the Shard. There's just too much money around for that to be allowed to stay like that. Money will not let it happen. So this was presented as a housing deal. Um, You know, build houses, that sounds good. And uh, here's a developer that seems somehow to own lots of land in the area, old warehouses and plots of land, and just presented as a good deal for everyone. We'll get a housing zone grant. It's only when they started talking about compulsory purchasing land and evicting local residents which really has to be in the public interest. That you start to think, well, hang on, that doesn't quite sound right. Who's that benefiting exactly? And I mean, it's, it's basically like it's like the worst episode of The Wire you've ever seen. You kind of <laughs> follow the money, and rather than sort of glamorous American people, it's a bunch of absolutely mediocre local politicians <laughs> um, sort of cooking up some kind of deal. And, and, and thankfully, we've managed to chuck a. Chuck something in the spokes.
3: A few months ago you wrote, um, for a start, the plans to create a, quote, new community, unquote, overlook the fact that Bermondsey already has a community, one that has been flourishing quietly with help from Millwall themselves. What kind of stuff um, were you talking about there? How were Millwall helping the local community?
4: Well, I mean, that's that's basically the nail on the head, isn't it? It's what, who, who do we want to live in our cities is the point. Something like uh, Millwall, um, they've been in that area of London for you know, over 100 years and over 120 years in all. At times, it's been the most abandoned place imaginable. I mean, Millwall's problems in the 70s and 80s, I mean, everybody knows about that. It was a pretty grim place. I went there myself. A lot of that, you know, these are societal problems. I mean, it was a, a massively abandoned bit of London. There, there, there was a really interesting history of all that to be written. But the club did hold the place together. It was the centre of that place. People, people love that club. They, you know, really is massively valued. Um, it's it's utterly bound up in that community. I can't think of a, a small English club with a stronger identity than Millwall. It kind of sums up that idea of people still being allowed to live in cities, even though they're they're not working in the financial industries and they're they're just simply trying to sort of exist in the place where their families have been. So I mean, the club is very much a part of the community in that sense. Also, it does massive work in the community. The, the the community trust is a brilliant thing. They work with kids and ex-offenders and people who just can't have any training, can't get jobs, and they do fantastic things. Um, so the idea that you want to encourage local people to regenerate their local community by basically buggering off and living somewhere else and getting out of everybody's way and letting the bulldozers come in is something that's always bothered me. And you see, it, you see it happening in every city around the world. Um, and it's something that needs to have checks and balances on
3: it. I mean, this, this is a kind of complicated question, I guess, Bernie, but I mean, you did mention, okay, it's half a mile from the Shard. London is the richest city in Europe. How did this area become sort of, I don't know if left behind is really the right phrase, but so poor compared to near, nearby areas of London?
4: Well, it, it's always been historically poor. It's kind of landlocked in this bend of the Thames to get in or out it's quite difficult it's quite i still get lost there it's quite a confusing weird bit of london it, there, there's no bridge there there's a couple of tunnels um and it's sort of lost it it was a marshland originally they had biscuit factories there and tanneries and it was always this slightly weird lost part south of the city then it got bombed to death by the luftwaffe and on the back of that they built a lot of new housing what we'd see now as rubbish council blocks but in that is a lot of social housing there are people who are on protected tenancies. you know i mean this was a I guess a, quite a left-wing idea that people would be allowed to live there, they'd be protected, and I mean, w- w- another reason why uh, Bermondsey is 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 still this place that hasn't been washed out and gentrified and turned into crappy flash flats is is because it's it's full of people who were w- were moved into the new council buildings that were built when it was flattened in the war, and who are on protected tenancies, and who are allowed to live in the city, who who are people who work and live around there, and and um, and, and somehow can exist without working in financial services, which I happen to think is a good thing.
0: <laughs> you talked, about Barney, about how this um, trail led to mediocre politicians. What exactly went wrong? How did the plan get sunk eventually?
4: Well, they've tried to pass this compulsory purchase order. They tried to reconfirm it three or four times, and each time some pesky fact keeps getting in the way. I mean, at first it was we discovered a sales brochure which showed that one of the developers had been trying to sell their land around Millwall's Grand already. You know, sell it on for a quick, quick deal, which had to be investigated, which kind of delayed it a bit. Some of the Labour councillors there. I mean, it's, it's a one-party state, Lewis. I mean, it's a huge place. It's got its economy the sort of it's population the size of Iceland. It's a billion-pound economy, but it's a one-party state. It's like a dictatorship. And some of the Labour councillors who are a bit further to the left have been objecting, have been just about stopping it going through. Uh, and then it all kind of came to a head when we, we started really looking into their funding um, and discovering they've made up all the the charity at the heart of it, They've made up all sorts of strange promises that weren't actually true. Um, you know, I mean, sort of dishonesty about funding from quite reputable charities to help them build their entirely bogus sporting village, which is designed to replace Millwall, which actually is a sporting village. Um, and in the end, it just—it was just a, a thousand cuts. It just fell to pieces. Even basically, quite mendacious politicians were unable to force this through, and okay. they're having their own inquiry
3: now. Would you say that this is? Uh uh, let's say an atypically egregious example of an urban regeneration project. That what was happening uh, in in Bermondsey was like so out there that these types of things probably don't happen in every other similar um, borough around or and or council area around the UK.
4: I think it's happening everywhere all around the world. And this the thing about this is all we've done is just turn on the lights and have a look at it. As we know, local newspapers, they're on a shoestring. They they can't scrutinise this stuff anymore. So who else is scrutinising it? Um, there are devolved powers everywhere. I think this is happening all around the world. And the one thing we've done is actually look at it. Uh, but I think deals like this go through constantly. I mean, what it really reminds me of, I don't even know if you saw the programme Our Friends in the North. Um, which was about a very similar scheme which happened in Newcastle where they they built the worst council flats you've ever seen on the back of a kind of friends and developers in the council deal and it ended up being a terrible scandal and the flats were basically they got rained on they're made of cardboard and fell down Um, and it weirdly reminds me of that it's the idea that you need to build houses that's a good that's a you know you've got to people have somewhere to live and then it gets filtered through this local politics where it's all friends nobody's watching And, and I think this is happening all over the world I think scouring of cities and the forcing out of people the way money is ultimately key to everything. Um, it's a, it's, you, you must have seen it, everybody must have seen this wherever they live. But, but in Bermondsey, like you say, it was, it was so cartoonish and absurd that we actually were able to bring it to light.
0: Yeah, it's great work you've done, Barney, and we have heard a rumour behind the scenes that uh, there's talk of Barney Roney maybe being nominated for Millwall's Player of the Year. <laughs> is, this, is this true or have we been misinformed?
4: Well, I think the great shame of that is the cup run's probably scuppered it. <laughs> yeah,
0: there's too many guys uh, banging yeah. in goals and
4: so on, yeah. it about that. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not good for me, this cup run. So but, uh, I can't see that happening. Listen,
0: Barney, great work and thanks a million for talking to us today. Cheers. Cheers, see you. We only touched on the dramatic nature of the win itself. In fact, we barely touched on it. It was uh, a last-minute winner in case you missed this Millwall-Leicester game over the weekend.
2: Here's Gregory on the chest, a little run beyond him, Cummings in the area, Cummings from Millwall,
1: yes, yes, Millwall score, Cummings with the goal for Millwall,
2: unbelievable, we are just heading into Added on time, and Millwall take the lead, up from the back line into the 18-yard
0: box. And cue pitch invasion from some overexcited home supporters, Ken.
3: Yeah, there was a, quite a few supporters on the field after the final whistle went. Uh, police horses clearing away. and Three arrests, on. Everybody um, everybody afterwards, well, certainly everybody on the Millwall side, agreed that, look, it was inevitable there was going to be a bit of a pitch invasion. You know, you don't knock out the champions, the third Premier League team they've knocked out on this cup run, and expect the fans not to show their happiness. What's wrong with everybody running onto the pitch in a chaotic uh, manner running <laughs> over to where the away fans are <laughs> and making threatening gestures. What's wrong with that? Well, you know, the game's gone. You know, if, if fans aren't allowed to do that, then political the game correctness, really is gone.
5: Political correctness gone mad, Ken, if you ask me.
3: A tricky old evening for
0: Barcelona last night. Uh, looked for a long time or for a, a period of time as though they're going to be held at home by Is not a big club in Spain. <laughs> not, a, not a powerhouse. I don't know if you noticed, Ken, that there was a, a screen grab this at one stage. So, impressed was I by how clueless the Barcelona, or how freaked out the Barcelona coaching
3: team looked at one point. Uh, You can
0: see here, this is...
3: uh, Yeah, that's uh, Luis Enrique and his psychologist. Oh, is that a psychologist as opposed to, okay. Yeah, the sports psychologist whose job is to um, go about with Luis Enrique. All right,
0: well, you might describe the psychologist's reaction to the goal going in against his team.
3: Um, he is—he is doing very much an—I don't His his eyebrows are raised, his his lips are sort of pressed together, his hands are—he's almost raising his palms to the sky. Luis Enrique is looking to him as though for guidance, as so often happens and he's just kind of drawing it's, it's, a bit of a blank there. It's beyond
0: my remit, mate. I don't know why we're one all at home to this team. But uh, you can have a look, Murph, as we introduce our next guest, <laughs> Dermot mm-hmm. Corrigan. Uh, they had a few days to digest the result against Paris Saint-Germain. And I don't think too many people, Dermot, are giving Barcelona a chance of clawing that deficit back in the Champions League. Certainly with what happened last night against a tiny club, uh, they did get the win in the end, but only just about. It was, uh, it was, it was so close to Legani's taking a point from the new Camp.
1: Yeah, it was pretty weird. All right, like Leganes haven't won since November. They're in they're in awful form. They're uh, as you say a really small club who just came up for the first time this season, and they look to be headed back down again. So nobody really expected them to get anything. Especially after Bessie scored so early in the game to put Barca one nil up, you thought, okay, Barca aren't going to play great, but they're going to they're going to just go through, win two or three nil, and it'll be fine. But even inside the stadium, there was like a weird atmosphere with the half the fans chanting Luis Enrique's name in a kind of a club-supported kind of a way, and then the other half booing them and whistling them and telling them to, to stop. So the, it's just a weird situation, a weird atmosphere at the game. You know, again as equalized, then Messi scored a penalty at the end. But even then, Messi didn't look too happy about it. You know, he had a kind of grim look on his face. He didn't celebrate at the, the final whistle either. And it, it's clear that, that something's just broken inside the club, and it's a big problem for them, for sure.
0: Messi's goal, Messi's penalty was quite funny, actually. He sort of strode up, Belted the ball in, really kicked through the ball. Stood there, posturing a little bit by Leo Messi standards, but I think he was uh, in a in a much less demonstrative manner, say, than Alexi Sanchez at Arsenal. I think maybe he was trying to get a message across there that <laughs> we shouldn't be resorting to this last minute penalty to beat these guys.
1: Yeah, he looked kind of embarrassed about the, the situation that he was having to to do it and to come through and and pull them out of it again. It's really hard to know what's going on inside Messi's head. Like he he doesn't talk very much about it. When he does talk, often he he just gives um. Kind of bland answers to to questions at, at FIFA events and stuff. But it's pretty clear that he he's not so happy with, with how things are going. I think more than more than, even more than with Luis Enrique, he's just annoyed with the the way the club has been run over the last couple of years. That he, there seems to be he doesn't have a good relationship at all with with the board. His dad is it doesn't get on with the directors. He feels that they don't really know what they're doing. It it seems like he's he, he's criticised them in the past, saying that they're just businessmen, that they don't understand football. And I think more than anything, that's that kind of disconnection between the, the star players who've been there for a good while and the, the guys who run the club, that is the biggest problem.
3: Yeah, um, well, we can get into who really is running that club, I guess. But just the, on the actual team itself, there are a lot of problems in that team. I mean, OK, maybe maybe it's not at full strength, but watching it last night, um, the full-backs both look like completely out-of-place dweebs. Like they don't, they don't have any, there, there was a moment in that game when uh, Lucas Dean, the left back, uh, played the ball up the line to Neymar and then stood there, it was in the second half, stood there sort of looking at him and Neymar with the ball at his feet, looked back at him and then like swiped his hands through the air as, as though to say, move, you know, get up, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you the ball back, but I need you to be moving. It was kind of, these guys don't know what they're doing out there.
1: Yeah, it's weird. Like, Barca's bought a lot of players in, in recent years. Just looking at the thing this morning, like, they spent more than 100 million last year on, on last summer on a load of players. They spent... Similarly, the, the summer before, even though they had the transfer ban, and they brought in a lot of these guys, like Dean, like Alex Vidal, even Arda Turan, Paco Ser Andre Gomez, who I guess we could talk about it as well, who they just don't look like Barca players. Like before, you know, when, when Guardiola was there or when there were, things were winning, they just brought in these kids from the youth system who, who seemed to know what to do. Like they knew where to run at least, or they knew where to position themselves, what, what to do to, to put the platform there for Messi or, or Neymar or whoever to, to do their thing but at the moment there's there's no structure in the team they're not sure what they're doing they don't it doesn't look like Barca anymore before you used to look okay these are these are real Barca players but at the moment they just look like uh, anybody else really and it, it's it's just not working for them
3: has andre gomez become the general scapegoat i mean he was getting booed by by the crowd which is obviously never a good sign
1: yeah it's like he seems like a nice enough guy himself andre gomez he talks he's very um modest about it and says he's just happy to be there and so but he's clearly not a, a Barca style midfielder like he he's he's not the most mobile he's he's um not on the same wavelength as Messi and Iniesta and these guys and it's clearly playing on him like he knows that he's not really fitting in there and he knows that he's not doing what he's supposed to do which means that like his confidence seems to be to be shattered and he's not sure what to do and yeah like they spent a lot of money on him he was 35 million which could go to to 70 million if if everything works out the way it did in the in the closet I was looking at the the statement Barca put out last summer when they signed him, which had 15 million extra if he wins multiple Ballon d'Or trophies, like that's it's pretty. It was pretty unlikely to happen at the time, and it's not going to happen now. And it, again, it goes back to what I was saying about the board that the players that they've signed are not the they're not the right players. I don't. I think the likes of Messi and and know that the, they're not getting the help that they they should be getting, and that you know it's it's that's what's that's happening on the pitch now.
3: Um. Well, what about then off the pitch? Because you mentioned. Um, Messi's relationship with the directors and so on, and he has said contemptuous things about some of them in the past. And based on the decisions that they've been making over the last um, year or two years, he probably has a point there that these these guys aren't necessarily demonstrating the greatest skill or expertise in carrying out their duties. Um, Barcelona, it looks like, are going to have to find a new coach. Uh, I mean, I, I guess you know that that looks like a ninety-five percent likelihood. At this point, so they're going to be getting hiring someone new in the summer, but who makes the decision over who it's going to be? That board of directors doesn't have the authority to appoint a coach that Lionel Messi doesn't like.
1: Yeah, it's true. Like, the, there's nobody there really uh, who's a leader at the club. Like Bartomeu, the the president, has no charisma at all. You know, the sporting director Robert is an ex Barca player, but he's not a big name, and it doesn't seem that people take him serious. Even the players, he can say something, the players will come out and contradict him the the, the next week. The last time this kind of happened was when Tata Martino took over and he seemed to be a, you know at least had the, the nod from Messi or Messi's family as a, another Argentinian a, a guy from Rosario as well. It does look like Messi is in the, the driving seat like he he's got 14 months or 16 months or whatever is left left on his contract. The need the board need him to sign it so he looks like he has the he could have the say on who comes in. Maybe they go for another Argentinian. San Pauli's doing really well at Sevilla. He'd be a an interesting guy to get in. But again, it's not a good situation for for anybody really. If if they're you know they're going to Messi, who's not the most, you know, it's hard to know what Messi really thinks. He's not the most communicative or articulate of, of guys. So if he has a say over it, it's it's just not a good situation.
0: Is Ronald Koeman an outside bet? We're talking about Enrique as though he's gone, but let's let's talk that way for the time being. Is Koeman yeah. a possibility?
1: A uh, Koeman. Like he, he would be popular with, with older Barca fans I guess because he's involved like he scored that goal that won them their their first Champions League he he knows the the club inside out I think amongst you know he doesn't get really get talked up that much in in the local press like in the Catan press he'd still be seen as an outsider there's um the Athletic Bilbao coach is also in at Valverde who's another ex-Barca player and he's done a really good job at Athletic he knows the Liga really well but again he's not a He's not that kind of glamorous or he doesn't have the charisma that, that maybe Sampali would have, somebody who would lift things and get a, a positive mood around the club again. It's hard to know, really. Like Luis Enrique didn't have a great record either when he came in, but in his first season, things went, went flying under him. He, had, you know, he got them running again. He got them intensity up again. It's a difficult decision, and as you said, there isn't anybody really there who, who can stick their neck out and go, look, I know what I'm doing here. Trust me, I'm going to hire this guy. So if it does start to go wrong really quickly, Again, the the plug just open and they get criticised again.
3: I mean, I would have to say that the the outstanding Spanish coach, well, maybe Basque coach, I don't know how strongly he feels about all that. Um, is you know, Emery, that who who's, who who just masterminded their destruction in Paris uh, the other day? What uh, <laughs> is it the case with Barcelona that unless you've got you know. As they say, Barcelona DNA, they just don't really, they just aren't going to be that interested in you. They might rather look at someone like Ronald Koeman because, you know, he's done okay jobs at various, you know, at various clubs because he scored a goal for them at Wembley uh, and and several other goals besides, rather than a guy like Emery who's got no connection to Barcelona but does appear to be a really, really good manager.
1: Yeah, like... Kumán's record in Spain at Valencia was was pretty awful. He got bombed out of there after all the players gave up on him, like over a decade or so ago now. And you know he's done okay with Southampton and Everton, but that's not, it's not compared to what Unai Emery has done. But I'd say that Barça are a bit like Madrid. That what you do at other clubs doesn't have that much of an influence on on what happens when you take over it. There's so many big stars there. It's such a, the atmosphere is so unique, really, about dealing with the the media, with the expectations of the fans, with having you know the the best squads in the world really to deal with. Able to organize Everton or, or Paris Saint Germain, even, is just a different skill set than what you need to be the, the Madrid or the Barca coach.
0: All right, Dermot Cargan, great to talk. Thanks, Samuel.
1: Cheers, guys.
5: I, got a bone to pick.
2: I do like Canel
1: Early's work. I do like Canel Early's work. I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with London, says about football.
5: I'm mad.
2: He writes fluently and thinks cogently. Uh, you mentioned Canary. what well, I, I wouldn't necessarily I agree with
3: what Canary says about football. He just thinks I'm annoying, annoying twat. Twat.
0: Did you just describe Barcelona's fullbacks as dweebs?
3: That was kind of how they seemed to me, yeah. They seemed like uh, they were kind of having a bit of a nightmare. Like we have ended up here it, out of our depth horribly where we've got these silky three guys up front who are the best in the world, right? <laughs> the three most intimidating... Most annoyingly, yeah, yeah. They are the three most intimidating players in the world to to be part of a team that they don't think you're good enough to be on with. <laughs> and uh, they were just sinking. I mean, Sergio Roberto... Um, what w- you know threw himself to the ground in the build-up to the Leganes goal. I mean, he was trying to win a free kick and he just fell over really weakly, you know. And they L- Leganes equalised. This was with about twenty minutes to go, so it did look at that point as a Barcelona were gonna, that was going to cost them more points. Mm. And it was just so weak, you know, and so it was so humiliating for him. But you know the the incident with Neymar on the other side that I mentioned with uh, Dermot there. You know, it was kind of like Neymar looking at him going, "What are you doing? Do you not un- do you not understand football?" Whereas the guy. Dean has he was there just waiting he 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 was obviously this kind of passive figure like unsure of what to do un like afraid to take the initiative you know he wasn't sure if he should I make this run would it be right I'll just hold my I'll just hold my position and that's just not really good enough for a club on this sort of level and I mean when you see when you see that for instance the player they used to have instead of Sergio Roberto Dani Alves you know when you when you see they've gone from that from, from that level of player to this, it's really, you know, there's no, like Danny Alves is one of these kind of bionic players, almost like he clearly didn't get enough respect. Actually, there were some interesting quotes from him today.
0: Sorry, you just uh, I was about to ask, was he even slightly underappreciated while he was there? Well, he was, yeah. Because there was always this, oh, Danny Alves, yeah, good going forward and uh, like as though that's only a small part of the game for a start even if he, even if he wasn't the greatest defensive fullback of all time his his ability to go forward was what prompted a lot of barcelona's brilliant play he
3: played as their right winger really yeah. and also their right back because he was a player with the unusual stamina that he could uh, he could kind of do both jobs uh, Obviously, Barcelona team that spends a lot of time in the front foot. I mean, I think Dani Alves would spend more time in the opposing half than any other player in La Liga. There was some crazy statistic like that. Like, he was the furthest forward Barcelona player, even though he was their right-back. And he was fundamental to their whole system of play, particularly Lionel Messi. He was like a mobile wall. Messi could knock a pass off any time and get it back yeah. um, in any area of the field. And he doesn't have that now. You know, their right the right side of their team has kind of collapsed since he's gone. And he's got some quotes uh, now... He says, i like to be loved. If they don't want me, I'm leaving. Leaving Barcelona on free was a big lesson. During my last three seasons, I always heard, Alves is leaving. The managers never said anything to me. When he says managers, he means directors. Uh, He says, uh, they were very false and ungrateful. They did not respect me. I was only offered to renew when the FIFA transfer ban came in. That was when I went and signed a deal with a termination clause. Those who run Barcelona today have no idea how to treat their players. So this is a legendary player. Sorry, was that this week? That's now. They, that, those quotes are like ah. being reported. Why is that?
5: Well, just interesting that Danny Alves decided to go
3: public with his uh, <laughs>
5: concerns this week of all weeks.
3: <laughs> well, he did also say... He's a say regular
5: <laughs> Nicky Bailey when it comes to playing the Pior game. <laughs> he
3: did say also that if anyone can come back against Paris, it will be the Barcelona machines. Mm. You know, they've done it too many times to, for us to say there's no chance. Yeah. So he did say that as well. But he has hammered the directors here. And, you know, when you, when you consider what Dermot was saying, you know, about Messi's relationship with them, I'm sure that's the relationship of, of most of the good players, whereas the, the recent, more recently arrived players who nobody really respects and who aren't really good enough, maybe they feel differently about it. But you've got, you can see a team that's now split in the dressing room and with no clear idea of how they're going to get out of it.
0: OK, we've got another show out today, we will certainly have today, Monday afternoon, featuring the GA Football of the Year, no less Lee Keegan, who finally got his hands on an All-Ireland, he won the intermediate title with his club yesterday, so it uh, should be a good chat there. For you World Service members out there, some great stuff on the way for the rest of the week, including tomorrow, Tuesday, 10 years on from England, Ireland and Croke Park, one of the most historic sporting occasions ever to take place in this country. We're talking to two of the players on that day, all round legend Jerry Flannery and Shane Horgan, who I think scored a try mm. that day. I think that's gone down as part of the folklore of the day. So we'll talk to Shane about all that and Jerry Flannery. If you're not signed up to the World Service just yet, secondcaptains.com is the place to do it. Any problems at all, any technical difficulties signing up, just email members at secondcaptains.com and we'll clear those up. Or you can tweet us at secondcaptains. That's so that email address, if you do happen to encounter a problem, is members at secondcaptains.com. Thanks, Ken. I think so. Thanks, Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Gareth. Thanks, Owen. Kent, you're amazing. Thanks for listening. You're all amazing. <laughs> it's gone, is that? That's the second time it's gone oh. they
4: never on. They
1: never go home.
4: They
3: never go home. They never go home. Does does.